So I'm sure that you are familiar with the, the comic strip Peanuts by Charles Schultz. And you probably are familiar with that little storyline that they ran a bunch of times where Lucy would ask Charlie Brown to come up and kick the football. And uh, Charlie Brown, of course, being the susceptible guy that he is, time and time again would run and wind up as much as he could and try to kick the football. And what would Lucy do? Well, she would move it, and Charlie would wind up on his back. Well, in one of the comic strips, Lucy solemnly promised Charlie Brown that this time she wouldn't pull the ball away. So, Charlie Brown backs up a long distance. He runs full speed at the ball, and of course, she pulls it away in the last second. As he's on the ground looking face up, Lucy stands over him and says, Charlie Brown, your faith in human nature is an inspiration to all people. Well, I'm sure you can relate to Charlie Brown because we live in a world where we've lined up to kick. We've run full force with all of our trust on the line. And what happens? We wind up on our back. Too many times we've opened ourselves up. Too many times we've been let down. It's hard to trust in a world that pulls the ball away, isn't it? But think about this for a moment. You, you really can't live without trust in this world. You have to trust someone with some things. Indeed, you have to trust some people with the most personal, intimate things of your life. You have to trust someone with your medical care. Uh, there's times in life where you have to trust someone with your future. Some of us right now are trusting someone with our heart. But what about with God? Can we trust Him? How far can we trust God? Should we trust God? It's one thing to say that you, you trust God when there's nothing on the line, but it's another thing to say that I trust God when you are giving up more control and letting God take more control in your life. It tends to work like that, doesn't it? Trust does. You hand over a little bit at a time. Uh, as you hand things over, if you're not getting burned, then you say, okay, well, I can hand more things over. You see, in your relationship with God, and the operative word here is relationship, you cannot have a relationship without trust. He is ever looking for you to trust Him more. He's moving you towards a place of implicit trust. Why? Because God wants to be in relationship with you. God wants to be in that deepest place with you. Now ask yourself a question for a moment. Can you really trust God? See, the text that we're looking at this morning is actually going to deal with some of the bigger questions. Uh, Sarah is going to ask the question, can she trust God to do what he says he is able to do? Abraham's going to ask a very similar question. Well, if God is all-powerful and he has that kind of power, can I trust God to do the right thing? with that power? These are the questions that they're facing this morning in Genesis chapter 18. And I would invite you to turn there with me. 
You see, these questions, they might seem random, but they're not. Sarah and Abraham have different trust issues because their circumstances are different. I would imagine that the person sitting next to you has different trust issues with God than you do. Well, it may be different, though. It's still personal. It requires faith in the character and the promises of God. That's what it all boils down to. Is God who he says he is? Can I really trust him with my life? So we pick up the story. Shortly after Abraham has obeyed God, now he is sitting outside the door of his tent. It is a sweltering 100 degrees outside. Can you imagine sitting out in that? I'd hate it. I want 70 degrees, no more. Uh, but Abraham sweating away when suddenly three strangers appear. Let's pick up in the text. Chapter 18, verse 1 through 8. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, and he sat down at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the trees while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seeds of fine flour, knead it, make cakes. And then Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man and, who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf and, that he had prepared, and he set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Now, these are no ordinary strangers here in this text. Uh, Abraham seems to know it. How, we're not quite sure, but when you look there at verse 2, it almost reads as if these three men appear. And the word that Abraham uses when he talks to them is the word Lord. In the Hebrew text, he calls these visitors Adonai, which usually is reserved for addressing the Lord, capital L. Normally when addressing my Lord, lowercase l, they would use a different word. So how would you act if someone incredibly famous showed up to your door. One caveat, you actually respect this incredibly famous person. I mean, I've eaten with famous people in my life. I think the most famousest of them all happens to be Paul Chesbro, of course, the de facto mayor of Osterville. I mean, if Paul shows up at the house, you bring out the fine china. You cook the best that you have on hand. You spare no expense. You get excited. Can you imagine a 99-year-old Abraham running around? That's what we see here this morning. I laugh at that phrase a little morsel there in verse 5. The menu for the three guests includes three seas of flour. That's six gallons of flour. For bread, a whole calf, yogurt, milk. I mean, we're talking in, about an absolute royal feast that Abraham is preparing here. What is so significant about this little story as Abraham's running around at 99, getting all enthusiastic about his guests? Well, in the Bible, 
meals with God represents peace with God. You don't sit across the table and eat with your enemy. You sit down at the table and eat with your friend. I mean, isn't that an amazing thing to think about? The God of the universe, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, sitting down across the table, looking eye to eye, laughing, consorting with Abraham, being his friend. Wow. And when you look at the Bible, the Bible tells us that God wants to be your friend too. That God wants to sit at the table and have a meal with you. In the New Testament, Jesus offers his friendship to his disciples and by extension to us. He says, I want to be your friend. And Jesus actually has a meal with us. We, we celebrate it here in our church once a month. We call it communion. When we come together for this meal, we celebrate having peace with God. When we're eating the bread and and drinking the wine, or in our case, grape juice. I mean, you ever thought about that? Christian worship, the center of Christian worship, is a meal. A meal where we celebrate in meaningful reflection, dining together, celebrating new life in Christ, participating in the deepest levels of fellowship, saying, Jesus, I trust you with my eternal salvation. Friends, we've got to get that distant, cold, calculating God out of our mind that doesn't really want much to do with us or think much about our lives. You see, when we look at the Bible, God is close. God is personal. God is near. God comes to the table and he eats with you. Well, how do we get this friendship with God? Well, the Bible tells us that we get it through trusting Jesus as our Savior. That's how you come to know God. Uh, Jesus said in John's Gospel, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Do you want to make your home with God? Do you want to know God personally? The Bible says come to Jesus. Trust him as your Savior. And when you know Jesus, then you are in the deepest level of fellowship with God. So, what happens, though, when God gets up close and personal? Well, he, he looks us in the eye and he asks us to return the same level of friendship to him. He wants us to trust him with every area of our life. In verses 9 through 15, Sarah will be the first one put to the test to see if she will trust God in this sort of way. And the question that God is going to ask Sarah, or Sarah will be asking herself is, can I really trust that God can work a miracle in my life? Look at verses 9 through 12. We'll see it pick up there. They said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. Now the way of a woman had ceased to be with Sarah, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Now, Lake Abraham in chapter 17, Sarah found this promise to be incredulous. Remember, uh, we saw last week the oldest woman 
in, in recorded history to have had a child was 59 years old by natural birth. Sarah is 31 years her senior here. This would be miraculous if she was to give birth to a child. I suspect that Sarah is struggling, though, because she feels like she's run up to that ball one too many times, kicked, and fallen on her back. Notice that I said, feels like. I didn't say that God had promised her something and that God hadn't come through, but in Sarah's heart of hearts, what did she want more than anything? She wanted to hold a child that she had given birth to. God will never promise you something and not deliver on it. Which means that we have to be careful, doesn't it? Sometimes we say things like, I, I know that God has promised me. Because we have a strong desire for something to happen. We want it. We want it bad. We've brought it before God and, and God has come to our side and he's given us peace about this situation. But that doesn't necessarily mean that God's promised that he's going to do something about it. At least not in the way that we're expecting him to. Friends, please hear me rightly here. Until you hear something like, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. God hasn't promised anything. Don't call a feeling a promise. Don't misconstrue God's concern for your situation and know that God's concerned about it. God loves that child that you're concerned over more than you do. He cares about your physical well-being more than you do. But don't misconstrue that for one of God's promises that he is, a stake, that he is staking his eternal reputation upon. You see the difference there? He cares about your situation, but maybe he hasn't promised to change it. Maybe the reason he's not promising to change it is because he intends for you to go through it and to learn something from it. See, Sarah's heart had grown callous because she had prayed over and over again, asked and hoped. She had prayed a second time, hoped a second time, prayed a fifth time, hoped a fifth time, prayed a fiftieth time, hoped a fiftieth time. And every time she felt like she was lined up to kick, she's fallen on her back, she's wondering what's going to be different this time. I want you to understand that this isn't a laughter of mirth. This is a laughter of melancholy. Sadness, doubt. But only this time God said, Start counting down. I'm about to do a wonderful work in your life. Look at verses 13 to 15. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Now let me ask you a question. Can God perform miracles? 
See, this is an important question, isn't it? It's the question that's before Sarah right now. Is God able? Can God deliver? Either he can or he cannot. Now, I love all of you guys dearly. I really do. Uh, I could not imagine a better congregation in all the world. But if you were to come to me individually and say that you could perform a miracle, I would say, oh, that's great. And then think that you're crazy when you walked away. You would say it, and while I think that you're a lovely person, and I think that, you know, there's great qualities about you, I would think that you're crazy because you do not have the power to perform a miracle. You would look at a molehill, tell it to move, and it wouldn't move an inch. When it was pouring the rain yesterday, you couldn't have said to one drop of rain, stop, and it would have stopped, right? But God, on the other hand, by virtue of being God, can perform miracles. I often hear people discredit the Bible along these lines. I'm sorry, but I just can't buy the story that God parted the Red Seas. Or did you really believe that Jesus walked on water? Or come on, seriously, someone raising again from the dead? And I got to tell you, if it was anyone other than God, I would say absolutely impossible, incredulous, can't happen. But we're not talking about anyone else here. We're talking about God. You see, the Bible doesn't shy away from these types of questions. In verse 14, the Lord asks Sarah, is anything too hard for the Lord? The word hard basically meaning wonderful, extraordinary, surpassing. God's putting it right out there. Do you believe that I can do miracles or not? Now let's ask what a miracle is. I would submit to you that a miracle is a breaking of the natural laws. What are the natural laws? Well, tell you what, gravity is keeping you firmly on the ground, and for me, it's keeping me more firmly on the ground than some of you. Our density, the surface area of our feet when we step off of a boat and try to walk on water sends us sinking down to the bottom. Or what about if I was to lose a limb? Would that limb regenerate? No. Because the properties of my body do not accommodate for that. Or if I was to pass away, you would not expect for me to be standing up here next Sunday and preaching to you. These are natural laws. They're reproducible under natural conditions. If you jump off of a chair 100% of the time, you will fall. But miracles defy natural laws. Miracles have God's fingerprint all over them because God created this universe and in his infinite wisdom, he imbued the universe with his natural laws. And in fact, because God did that, only God can break the natural laws. He's not bound by them. The lawgiver is not constrained by the laws. He's above them. He's outside of them. So when Sarah gives birth at 90 years of age, we know with certainty whose fingerprints are upon the miracle. And that's the beautiful thing about miracles. When you see a miracle, it means that God has shown up. Maybe you've seen the fingerprints of God. I remember when I was living in Oaklawn, Illinois, there was a little girl who had a scoliosis of the back, a 30 uh, 3% curvature of the spine. And uh, the doctors had taken pictures of it. They had seen it. 
Uh, we as a church family were praying for her because her next step from there was to go into surgery. After prayer, before the Lord, this little girl went back to her doctor, and the next time that she was seen, this uh, curvature of the spine was 11%. The doctor said, what did you guys do? The mom said, we prayed. The fingerprints of God, right? Uh, just uh, last week, I was having a great conversation, or yesterday, for that matter, with uh, Don Peterson and Chloe Peterson. And uh, Don uh, or Chloe had a growth on her knee, and they'd been praying about it for quite some time. Now, we don't know exactly if there was cancer of the knee or anything like that, but they as a family had been praying about this, that, that Chloe wouldn't have to go through her childhood going once a year up to uh, Boston and having this kind of weight looming over her shoulders of whether or not she would have something wrong with her knee. She just went to the doctor last Tuesday. The doctor said, Chloe, guess what? You don't need to come back here in two years. This is a miracle. His words, not mine. Chloe quotes, Psalm 18, she says this, He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. There was a scripture she had memorized when fear had been seizing her. Don said these words, I don't know why, but this is just the story that God's chosen for her. God doesn't always choose this story. And that's true. It's a good word. Sometimes, like in the case of that girl, God chooses to do an instantaneous event in some, someone's life. Other times, God doesn't choose to do that. I mean, that hasn't been the case for our beloved Isaac Schrager. Uh, we have been praying for this little guy. And I think that God's story for his life has been God's grace being worked out in a serious trial. God using his story to accomplish his unconventional work. Just this week, I met with uh, one of the guys from the Hyannis Fire Department, just said, I just prayed, these guys are incredible. Uh, they have been so good to Isaac. They've been present in his life as he's been fighting cancer. And in our conversation, I had the opportunity to look him in the eye and just say, you know, I respect the socks out of you guys, the way that you've loved on Isaac. Our church family is so thankful for what you guys do. His words only reinforce how big-hearted this fire department is, he said, Isaac has taught me a lot about resilience. You see, we at the fire department, we can get jaded. Situations can get out of hand. We can say to ourselves, is this really worth it? But then I watched this brilliant young boy who smiles, who faces adversity, and the next day bounces back up, and he's just a happy kid again. I think that Isaac, get this, has done more for us than we have done for him. Wow. By being God's vessel of grace, he's blessing others. You know, thank God for his works. Thank God for his miracles. 
They demonstrate the fingerprints of God. They work out his wonderful plan. In the case of Sarah, God's plan was to bring a different Isaac into the world by impossible means. Why did God do this? He wanted the entire world to see that Jesus had come into the world by impossible means over and over again. Just trace the lineage of Jesus. You see God overcoming barrenness on multiple occasions. You see him getting past impossible situations. You see Jesus coming into the world by the most impossible of circumstances. Virgin birth. So that when we look, that when we see the life of Jesus, we see the fingerprints of God all over that life and we know that Jesus then is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Do you see the fingerprints of God on Jesus' life? If you do, have you trusted him for who God says he is? See, as the story moves forward, there's a logical connection between Sarah's struggle and Abraham's struggle. If God is able to do whatever he wants, then you have to ask the question, well, will God handle that power or that authority rightly. Essentially, we ask, can I really trust that God will be fair? Verse 16 says that the Lord and Abraham looked down towards Sodom, and many scholars believe that they had walked from Hebron to another town called Ben-Naim. It's about three miles east of Hebron, where you can see the Dead Sea through the partition of some hills. And as they're looking at it, Abraham looks down and he sees Sodom. He sees a city like any other city in his mind. Certainly he's heard the reports about this city. It's not a very good city. It's not a place that he would want to pitch his tent next to. But his nephew, Lot, lives there. So he kind of has a heart for the place. He wants to see it do okay. He wants to see it prosper. The story tells us that the Lord asks himself an internal question, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Now just as an aside, uh, God doesn't need to deliberate. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. Kent Hughes explains God perfectly knows all things. He has never wondered at anything. He's never been taken by surprise. He's never forgotten about anything. He's never been mistaken. So sometimes when the Bible reveals God doing things like this, opening up God's thought process, if you will, it's not doing it for God's sake, it's doing it for our sake so that we can understand what God is thinking about a particular situation. Jesus in John chapter 11 says a prayer and he thanks God for hearing him. He already knows God hears him, but he says this, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this, what? On account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So not for God's benefit, but for ours, right? So the Lord explains why to Abraham. Verses 18 to 19. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. You see, as God's chosen promise, a vessel of promise, 
Abraham would need to know the difference between righteousness and wickedness, between true justice and a miscarriage of justice. And Sodom and Gomorrah then would become a place that would be a powerful teaching tool to the lineage of Abraham as they considered God's ways. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2.6, New Living Translation, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ashes. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. In June 2019, we're going to be taking a group of us to the land of Israel with uh, Dr. Harry Fletcher. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't made plans to be there Thursday, put that into your plans. Come check it out. Even if you're saying, I don't think I could pull this off, try to pull it off. Come listen. See what God can do in your situation to get you to go see the Holy Land. I think it's a very important trip to take. Now, one of the things that we intend to do, Lord willing, when we get there is to go visit Masada. And when we get to Masada, we'll be seeing the Dead Sea. Then we'll go down to the Dead Sea and we'll float in the Dead Sea, 30% salinity plus. So you're not going to be going down in the Dead Sea. And I want to encourage you to think about Sodom and Gomorrah, remember, an example, right? And as you look at that sea, go stand by the shores and look out over the lifeless, brackish waste of this lowest, most desolate place on the face of the earth, 13,000 feet below sea level. Listen to the lifeless waves lap on the beach in an unending monotone of death because nothing grows there. Nothing lives there. Nothing moves there. God has made this place an example to us. Now why would God do such a thing? Why would he turn an entire region into a place of desolation? Look at verses 20 and 21. The text says, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very great. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. If not, I will know. Now the Hebrew word for outcry means something along the lines of, um, or it's descriptive of the cries that you would hear of the victim or the oppressed or the brutalized. So in Genesis 4, when when God said that he heard the cries of Abel's blood coming from the ground, Abel who was murdered by his brother Cain. Now when we're going to get into the sin of Sodom more next week, I just want you to know most fundamentally that the sin of this place was a heinous moral and social corruption an arrogant disregard of basic human rights, a cynical insensitivity to the suffering of others. And God was hearing this, and God's going to go investigate. Now again, God doesn't actually need to go investigate. This is more for us than it is for God, right? He's demonstrating to us by going down to investigate that I consider the whole weight of evidence before I administrate justice. James Boyce Montgomery imagines the cries of the world. He says this, Listen, can't you hear the cries in your imagination? I think I hear the the cry of a child 
wretched, hurt, terrified, being beaten by a drunken father. There is another cry. It's the cry of an old man assaulted by a gang. I hear him cry as they beat him on the face and the shoulders. There is the cry of a teenage girl being raped in an abandoned car. And there is the cry of a wife abandoned by her husband. I hear the cry of a man who is trapped in his impoverished situation. I hear the cry of sinful pleasures. Raucous cries in the thousands. The cries of prostitutes and those who patronize them. The, the soft cries of the drug addict. The arrogant cries of those who have defeated their enemies, who have ruined their competitors. But wait, those are just a fraction of the millions of cries that are rising every moment of every day from every street and every city and village in our land. Cries that are felt by God. Cries that are heard by God. I mean, can you imagine the colossal weight of it all? If we could do this with reverence, could you put yourself in God's shoes and, and hear and see? We don't have the full picture, do we? I don't even understand all the outflow of the sinful choices that I've made in my life and, and the, the wake that is created. But God does. God sees it all. And He administrates justice fairly. And yet, we're in Abraham's shoes. We, we can't see. We, we don't know everything that's taken place in the dark of night or every outcome of every situation that has occurred. Not yet, at least. Like him, we just see a city. We see a place where we have a nephew that we love. And we look and we would wonder, why would God destroy this entire city? Why would he treat righteous people as collateral damage. And so Abraham, with his heart in the right place, he asks God a serious question. Look at verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare is the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find a, at Sodom 50 righteous in that city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. The heartbeat of the question is verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? That's an important question. Because I don't want to worship a God who does the right thing sometimes but doesn't do the right thing other times. I don't want to worship a God who is only fair for his own purposes, for his own reasons, or who is unfair in the administration of his universal, absolute moral laws. Don't miss the point. Christianity would be unreasonable 
as a worldview if God just simply glossed over Abraham's questions here. Every Friday I listen to the Breakpoint podcasts from the Colson Center and it always opens up with these passionate words from Chuck Colson. He says this, What is Christianity? Christianity is an explanation of all of reality. There is not one square inch of human existence as to which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, Mine! He's, on, he's, on the, he's right spot on, isn't he? Your Christian faith must explain all of reality, just not some of it, right? And it does. God doesn't gloss over the hard questions. He deals with them head on. So the real question is, is do you recognize who God is? And if you do, sometimes maybe the struggle is not with the explanation of why God's doing what he's doing, but maybe it has to do with, I don't really like the decision God made. So the question you have to ask yourself is, am I going to let God be God or am I going to put myself in the judge's box? Do I want to be God? And I've got to tell you, I've tried to be God in my life, and I'm not good at it. And you're not good at it. So in this dialogue with Abraham, God patiently assures Abraham that he will not abuse his power. Even if Abraham's thought process is wrong from the start, you see, we, we get evil and righteousness all mixed up. We judge it on this scale of evil, and it's a sliding scale, and you know the points of reference change all the time. We say to ourselves, well, I, I make mistakes sometimes, but I'm basically a good person. I mean, I've never killed anyone. I've never stole like millions of dollars or anything. I'm certainly not Adolf Hitler. I've got to tell you, we put people like Billy Graham on the really, really, really good end of the scale, and then Hitler's on the really, really, really evil end of the scale, and I'm just a couple points away from Billy. <laughs> so then when I think that God should take care of evil, what I'm really thinking is that God should wipe out all of evil that's worse than some subjective place that I've put on the scale, and I'm certainly far to the left of that. But God doesn't define righteousness the way we do. You see, the most criminal act, the most heinous act in God's universe is to deny God's right to be God of your life. If you have lived for a moment in this life rejecting God's authority, you've committed the worst sin in God's eyes because he's the supreme, delightful creator of the universe and you rejected him. And God says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. He says in Psalm 14, there is no one who does good, not even one. So then by God's definition, there's not anyone in Sodom, there's not anyone in Gomorrah, there's not anyone in all of that plain, there's not anyone in all the ends of the earth. But thank God that he's gracious too. Because God doesn't just wipe us out. He meets us with his grace 
And he did this through his son, Jesus. Jesus came to this earth, lived the life that you couldn't live, died in the cross in your place, rose again to new life, and is now seated at the right hand of God. And every time that God looks at your life, he doesn't see the sinful acts that you have committed. He sees Jesus. It's called imputed righteousness. It means that God has placed the righteousness of Jesus upon you. And when God sees you, he sees Jesus' perfect life. You want to know what's ironic about this story? These people in Sodom, they're not righteous by God's standard. They're not even righteous by Abraham's standard. That's how bad this place is. I mean, listen to this exchange back and forth. Abraham says, God, would you save 50? God says what? I would. Abraham comes back, well, 45, then 45, give me 45. Surely for 45 you would save this place. God says, absolutely, I would save this place for 45. Abraham says, 40, yep. 30, mm-hmm. 20, you've got it. Verse 32, then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. All those voices, all of those outcries of wickedness and, and people suffering and yet God's disposition leans towards mercy. You get that? He would spare an entire city if only ten righteous people could be found there. And he would even go to that city and we pull out one quasi-righteous lot. And we're going to see that next week. The question that remains before us is, can you really trust God? I think more profoundly, the question that you need to ask yourself is, do I trust God implicitly? What is implicit trust? No qualification. No questioning. Just absolute, confident trust. Because you've seen who God is, because you know what he's like, because he's proved himself time and time again. You know, sometimes while playing with my daughter Lexi, I like to pick her up and put her up high in the air and kind of twirl her around. It's kind of fun. Uh, but I got to tell you, the older that she's grown, the more her sense of awareness of gravity has grown too. So Lexi freaks out while I pick her up at times and says, I'm daddy, and she grabs onto my arms and squirms. I got to tell you, it's probably because I dropped her that one time, but you know, <laughs> you mess up once, right? But seriously, I may not look like it, but I am strong enough to pick up my daughter and hold her securely. And if Je Lexi would just rest in that strength, it's actually a rather stable, firm experience in her life. It's when she tries to start taking control, that's when things get messy. How much truer is our relationship with God when you trust him implicitly when you trust in the lead when you trust his character his goodness when you believe his promises 
Your position is stable. It's firm. But what happens when you take control? Boy, it starts getting a lot shakier, doesn't it? Well, how can you grow in that confidence? Abraham sat at the table with God. He had a meal with God. He got to know God. And in that intimate exchange, Abraham's confidence in God soared. What do you think will happen in your life if you spend time with him? Let's pray.